This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, the gang gets subsumed to the value form as we read three essays by the late Canadian Marxist Moisha Postone. Critique and Historical Transformation from 2004, History and Helplessness from 2006, and Rethink and Capital in Light of the Grundrisse from 2008. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Good evening, Internet. Today we're going to be talking about uh, Moisha Postone, a recently deceased Marxist theorist who has influenced everyone from Platypus to Jasper Burns to Jehu to all kinds of cranks. All the, be- all the best Marxists. All the smartest people. Some of the most interesting newer Marxists are basically all running through Postone. He's an important Marxist theorist, and we took a deep dive into his work. We read three articles. The texts that were recommended here were forwarded to me by uh, Jamie Merchant, a student of Postone who I've read in the Brooklyn Rail, in response to some offhand comments that Tom and I made about Postone and value form theory in a discussion of that. So I appreciate uh, Jamie's patience in sending these in. Yeah, and so I guess the idea was to kind of do this episode in two parts, where the stone has two kind of sides to him, where he has his whole value form critique, his new reading of Marx against traditional Marxism, and then he kind of takes this reading and tries to apply it to actual history, shown in his essay History and Helplessness, where he kind of has a critique of anti-imperialism and a critique of anti-Semitism. And so we're just going to go through that and see what we can uh, get out of it. Let's just get started in talking about kind of what Pistone's general idea is. He says that there's this kind of traditional Marxism, and the way he defines traditional Marxism is, Socialism is understood primarily in terms of collective ownership of the means of production and centralized planning in an industrialized context. That is, conceptualized as a just and conscious regulative mode of distribution adequate to industrial production, which is understood as a technical process intrinsically independent of capitalism. This general understanding is tied to a determined understanding of the basic categories of Marxist critique of political economy. This category of value, for example, has been regarded as an attempt to show that direct human labor always and everywhere creates social wealth, which in capitalism is mediated by the market. Considering a surplus value, according to such views, demonstrates the existence of exploitation in capitalism by showing that labor alone creates a surplus project, which is then appropriated by the capitalist class. This interpretation is based on a transhistorical understanding of labor as an activity mediating humans and nature that transforms matter in a goal-oriented manner and is a condition of social life. That's what he claims traditional Marxism is. And he's saying that this is getting a lot of stuff wrong and we have to reread Capital to kind of have a deeper understanding. And so this does correspond to a certain Stalinist reading of Marxism and probably not just limited to Stalinism, but, you know. Okay, what exactly is wrong about traditional Marxism? 
Because honestly, socialism is the collective ownership of the means production. It is also centralized planning, and it's an industrialized society. Okay, industrialized society. I think that's where the problem's going to be. Because I'm sure a lot of Marxists, including Marx himself, are looking for some kind of transcendence of what we know as modern society and industrialization. It's not just looking to create another form of modern society. But he kind of goes on to say that this traditional Marxism sees emancipation as basically this kind of transhistorical labor being freed by the distortions of the market and and that therefore labor will be able to truly rule society. And he sees that as a, a critique from the standpoint of labor. Right. And so that's what his critique of Marxism is, essentially, that it's from the standpoint of labor as this trans-historical category. And he seems to be saying that, all right, we need to understand that value is not a trans-historical category. But then he says that labor itself is not a trans-historical category, which is kind of confusing, in my opinion. Right. Let's talk about the sense in which he means that. Yeah, that's what I didn't understand, is what that actually means. Because all human society, you have the existence of social labor. Well, he's talking about the difference between production basically as an interaction between man and nature, and the production of value as a mediating force in human social relations. What he argues is that Marx, Marx understands value to basically be the unique dynamic to capitalism. And so what he's basically saying here is that he's arguing that for Marx, capital is actually the proper capital s hegelian subject and not the proletariat or humanity and that you know the purpose of marx's critique was to call for basically a total negation of the subject of capital c capital honestly that makes me want to go full althusserian and just say that there is no subject of history <laughs> well he's certainly influenced by althusser oh definitely i noticed the althusserianism in here he throws althusser in with traditional Marxism, but the truth is that Postone's critique has a lot in common with, like, end-of-life burnout Althusser. He even admits that he has some resemblance with Foucault's idea of power in his rereading of Capital through the Grundrisse. Yeah. I saw him taking some distance from, at first, by saying, critical theory, you know, it hasn't really caught up. Post-structuralism is caught up with analyzing the neoliberal era, just as, you know, classical critical theory was caught up with analyzing the sort of statist era of capitalism, whereas traditional Marxism was caught up with categorizing, you know, merchant and industrial capitalism. Like, what I'm doing here, I'm taking a big old step back, and I'm just trying to give you a general theory of capital. The, the most abstract theory that we can give you. Well, can I, can I pull a quote real quick? Here's like the passage I was literally referring to. He goes, Significantly, in introducing the category of capital, Marx describes it with the same language that Hegel used in the phenomenology with reference to Geist, the self-moving substance that is the subject of its own process. In so doing, Marx suggests that a historical subject in the Hegelian sense does indeed exist in capitalism. Yet, and this is crucially important, he does not identify that subject with the proletariat as does Lukács, or even with humanity, instead he does so with reference to capital. This identification of Hegel's Geist with capital represents the full working out of the theory of alienation Marx first articulated in his early works. Marx treats the unfolding of the dialectical logic of capital as a real social expression of alienated social relations that, although constituted by practice, exist quasi-independently. These social relations cannot fully be grasped as class relations, but as forms of social mediation expressed by the categories of commodity, value, and capital 
that structure and are restructured by class relations. The logic of capital, then, is not an illusory manifestation of underlying class relations, but is a social form of domination inseparable from the fundamental social forms and relations characteristic of capital. Okay, so that's kind of the whole capital as automatic subject yeah. idea. Yeah. Right. I think that's why he, he says, quote, far from entailing the realization of the proletariat, overcoming capitalism involves the material abolition of proletarian labor. The emancipation of labor requires the emancipation from alienated labor. However, I think that that is kind of bound up in what we would call traditional Marxism. Yeah, yeah that's my understanding, too, is that Marxists had this idea, traditional Marxists, or whatever you want to call them, they did have an idea that labor was, you know, had to overcome its alienating conditions of existence, and that's why you had ideas like workers' control and self-management, and why these critiques often propped up in Stalinist societies where these things were denied labor. Yeah, I don't really understand how you can understand really basic traditional concepts of, like, the dictatorship of the proletariat and the abolition of class in society and not make the connection that, oh yeah, this is the self-abolition of the proletariat. This is how it's going to work out, and it's an automatic sort of, like, thing. Well, that makes sense in one way, but there's, uh, I don't know, I'm reminded of this this part of uh, Endnotes 4 where they quote Kautsky, and Kautsky says as much. You know, Kautsky says, basically, you know, proletariat has to abolish itself, and they're like, oh, is Kautsky, like, the first post-work, you know, communizer? No, he wasn't, because his political concept relies on the affirmation of the proletariat. And the whole concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat does include this kind of idea of a universalization. And so there's a dangerous potential in Marxist history to be like, shit, we need more of these proletariats. That's like the crucial turn here. Well, it seems like the weakness is, because on some level he seems to buy into state capitalism. Right, we'll, we'll talk about why that is. Well, or at least, you know, identifying them as regimes of accumulation. Which, the thing about, like, state capitalist theory is that, like, on a macro level, like, stepping far back, like, it makes a certain amount of sense, right? Right. These were accumulative regimes, they existed within a world system, and so on some level... That's the level that he's arguing this, really. Right, which is the level where it makes the most sense. Yeah. On the other hand, like, when you, like, zoom in and start to look at, like, the microdynamics of Soviet society... That's where it starts to get a lot hairier, and it, the few less holds up. I mean, I'd even argue, and I think even Pistone, I mean, this kind of relates more to his history and helplessness, I say, but even at the geopolitical level, like the Soviet Union didn't exactly operate like a traditional capitalist entity. Yeah, I think you could connect, like, Pistone's critique of the capitalist production process as itself being capitalist, as being fundamentally reconfigured by the value process into a way of looking at the Soviet Union being like, well, Postone's always saying that, you know, it's not just the realm of markets and distribution that needs to be addressed. So maybe we can kind of just ignore that stuff and only focus on the way things are produced. You could read it in this way where because there's so-called capitalist kind of production process that even without a valorization process proper, that this is some kind of capitalist thing. That's what I'm trying to get at here with him saying, well, yes, we need to abolish value, and all traditional Marxism agrees. We need to abolish the value form as a way of mediating labor and move towards a planned economy. But Pistone is saying that we can't just abolish this. We also have to abolish the capitalist production process itself. 
What he's arguing is that the production process itself is subsumed under capitalism. Where is that shit from? That's from the results of the production process? Yeah. He's talking about real subsumption where, you know, in order to basically move beyond capitalism, you would have to, even at like a physical level, like restructure the entire industrial system of production. Marcuse actually argues the same thing, kind of. And I mean, even in the Cultural Revolution in China, you had these kind of weird attempts to restructure the labor process itself to be less alienating for the workers. So I think this idea has existed. And I think one way of looking at it is the dictatorship of the proletariat like formally subsumes production to proletarian rule. Right, but, right, exactly. But it doesn't really subsume it because it doesn't transform the product. The production process hasn't been truly socialized and transformed. Yeah, right. I guess the question is, you know, when it's only formally subsumed and we're still working with capitalist production relations, is that still, you know, what is that? This is where the desire to have like an immediate break to communization comes no, from. No, I, I get that. Is that if I get that, but like, what is that thing? Because I think of it maybe as something like a dictatorship of the proletariat or something. But even then, like, I imagine you would have to do some kind of market socialist bullshit for Dick Prol. So really, what we're talking about is something more like critique of the Goethe program, where Marx even admits that there's probably going to be the pangs and pressures of value, like, but that that yeah. are being resisted and being incentivized against. There's talk of labor notes and other attempts at solutions in Critique of the Gotha. Yeah, but I, I think from this critique that we're looking at here in Post-Stone, that something like labor notes would be vulnerable to the Black Mirror critique of, of time and work. <laughs> There's maybe a vulgar communism that thinks about labor and time in this kind of way before communism develops. It does seem to adapt a lot of things about, you know, radical ecological thought and primitivism and, like, post-structuralism and, and try to read them back into Marx, which I'm, I'm not really opposed to, honestly. But, like, you know, we'll talk about where this could go. On some level, all of this, like, begs the question of, like, what does he think the agency is of the capitalist class, right? Like, to what extent are capitalists conscious of their role as capitalists? Um, meat puppets. He sort of thinks about it in the same way Kamat does, or like Bordiga does in, um, what is the name of that essay? The demon and the bot. The doctrine of the body possessed by the devil. Yeah, it's basically like capital itself is like a series of social practices that go beyond simply human agency. That uh, they're, they're completely beyond, it's a structure that's completely beyond human agency, and like it increasingly annihilates any kind of human agency as it goes on. Amadeo Bordiga, leader of Left Come Gang. Postone specifically cites Althusser in a footnote as being like, hey, he really developed this concept of, you know, intersubjective agency being completely irrelevant, which I think is a great, you know, scientific development. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't say it that way, but, you know, that Postone is taking that on. Yeah, he's basically saying that capital is the geist of history, and capital is this automatic subject that exists beyond our control. And let's say, what is the rational kernel of this, per se, which is that capitalism is a product of human actions, collective human actions, and under certain social relations, acting, you know, and producing certain emergent effects that act back upon us in ways that are beyond our control. Right. So if there is a sense in which capitalism, as Marx says, 
you know, works behind the backs of the producers. And so there's this kind of alien value that right. everyone, even capitalists, are controlled by, this sort of impersonal force of domination. And so Marx is identifying this impersonal force of domination and pointing out that this form of domination also needs to be abolished. And I think that's clear in traditional Marxism, too. I think you could read this and get the sense that that there like is zero agency yeah. in the part of the capitalist class, and they're being acted upon it by this like alien structural force. Yeah, but I mean, and that reads as like hyper structuralist. I don't think that kind of like mode of reasoning is really like stood up scientifically historically. Well, not only is it hyper structuralist in that way, then he uses Hegelian dialectic logic to present the the kind of capitalist domination. It's kind of like a relocalization of dialectic of enlightenment, but just to capitalism. Mm. The rest of human history totally hasn't worked this way. It's just capitalism. Right. Someone like Foucault takes after the Frankfurt School and being like, oh man, all of history has been like subsumed to this. Postone is sort of like, this only applies to capitalism. He has this weird fucking word. It's called, what is it? Heteronomy? Yes. Heteronomy? Yes. So it, it means like a subject to the law of another, like nomos and hetero. We all know what hetero is. Nomos is Greek for law. Like, so... The, it's like the opposite of autonomy, but it also sort of suggests like there might be more than one law that you're sub- subject to. You know, like he thinks that's like a fundamental condition that's totally localized to capitalism or something. Mm-hmm. He seems to accept that there are forms of necessity that precede capitalism, but that these things in their class societies, I, maybe I'm reading him too strongly, but they don't obey laws in the same way. Like, they don't obey, like, a social law the way that Marx is claiming to have to found the Hegelian core of capitalism. Hold on. So with that claim, then, you would say that the, the only mode of production, then, that has ever existed is capitalism. Because yeah. if only capitalism, right. we can find a set of social laws right. and rules of reproduction in a class structure that defines that society. And I think Samir yeah. Amin's work on the tributary mode of production kind of destroys that claim. And so what I think Pistone's trying to do is he's trying to make Marx into nothing but a theorist of capitalism. Right. And it's it's he's only a theorist right. of capitalism, not history as such. Yeah. Yeah. He bends the stick too far. Right. That's exactly right, Jake. The people that he's, you know, talking to, he's dealing with a lot of, A, dumbass academic reconstructions of Marx, and B, dumbass totalitarian Stalinist ideologized versions of Marx. And yes, he's way better than those. Yay. Right? Mm-hmm. But he t- does the Marx over Engels thing and resents the idea of looking for dialectical logic in anthropology or whatever, because he's too literal about what dialectical logic means. Right. Like, Althusser has this kind of funny, you know, idea where, you know, Marx's dialectics would be the negation of the negation of Hegelian dialectics. They would be different in qualia. You know, they would just be a totally different thing. I think that was the smartest thing he ever came up with. Like, it's not even really useful to call it what Marx called dialectics in, in nature or something. Or, or like, when he refers to a dialectic in chemistry, like in, he does famously in a footnote of Capital. Like, um, or when Engels refers to dialectics in nature. It, it's, it doesn't make sense to say that there's, like, this Hegelian form in nature. They must be talking about something else. I think, honestly, people... 
underemphasize how critical Marx was of Hegel right. and how much he kind of tried to take the dialectic away from Hegel and put it into yeah. a more materialist, systematic concept, which is kind of what I find dialectics to be interesting. I find the kind of return to Hegel stuff to be far less interesting than the more god forbid even structuralist stuff i find more fruitful often because at least it's kind of trying to take marxism away from this what is in almost in a way a closed system of thought that's designed to prevent what they call uh what do they call it eclecticism like, i feel like the best way to avoid eclecticism is just to kind of hold on marx mm. basically defended hegel when everybody was trashing hegel and then when everybody liked hegel he would trash Hegel. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Pastone bends the stick way too much in terms of, like, uh, capital annihilating agency to the point where one can't really envision any kind of revolution uh, within this sort of, like, body of thought. Mm. He does the same thing that a lot of academics do when they encounter Marxism. But look what he's writing, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to be fair, yeah, he's writing in a period of time in which, like... There isn't much revolutionary agency, but he does the thing that ev almost every academic Marxist does, which is utterly chop off any kind of, like, proletarian revolutionary element to it. Yeah. Just chop it off, because if I start talking about the revolutionary agent of the proletariat more explicitly, it's not going to sound good for my long-term academic career. One, and two, it's just like, why would I talk about that? I'm an academic, you know? That's not what I'm here for. Let's talk about the internal reasons why he would do that, though. He thinks locating the proletariat in capitalism as a historically bound category is super important. So he thinks using that as a political category is like a setup. This really isn't that far from, like, Marcuse's idea of, like, a great refusal, you know? Like, it, really, it seems like he's basically looking and, like, seeing, well, the proletariat kind of blew it. <laughs> so, you know, what we need is, like, this absolute negation of, like, the subject of capital, which is, you know, capital C, capital, and that's what's central, so... And you know notice I mean? that Marcuse and Pistone have so much in common to me because they all base it on this kind of idea that there's this liquidation of the proletarian subject and all there is is capital, which must be negated in this grand insurrectionary break with the very logic of capital itself. That's exactly what Pistone doesn't say. That's exactly the step that Pistone does not take that we're going to be able to do any grand rupture. He has, like, a dark Bernstein vibe <laughs> where, like, it's not going to grow out of technology. It's not going to be some grand historical rupture that seems to come out of nowhere. It's going to have to develop within the society. And within Postone's critical theory, Q Seinfeld theme, it is, like, impossible to imagine that actually happening. Yeah, and that's why Platypus like him so much, because... You can read him as almost this kind of just ultra-cynical, contrarian guy, kind of just attacking the, yeah. the existing life. He was. No, we can't do it. Who are we kidding? It's impossible. It's true. It was a stupid idea to begin with. The whole thing about value and, and how it's not a trans-historical category. Yeah. That's important. Well, yeah, that's that's obvious, though. I think I, I mean, wanted to talk more about like the people that he influenced, specifically how like Jasper Barnes and Jehu, Burns. you know, sort of like the two most opposite people in within like Marxism. You know, you got Jehu, who's like hardcore accelerationist, Nick Land's favorite Marxist. You know, all we need to do is just reduce the amount of labor, and then communism will come. 
and watch the speed of capital just eviscerate itself whatever that kind of guy and then you got jasper barnes Burns. who's like we can't rely on technology in any way because it's connected to like capitalism and this whole logistics system is connected to capitalism and it's functionally connected it cannot be liberatory in any way and therefore we have to disconnect ourselves we have to have these sort of like localized counter logistic efforts that like break down global capital through like you know riots and strikes and that sort of thing breaking down like global logistics right the the reason that he can influence such disparate theorists is that there's two aspects to his work that don't actually seem to gel that well together but the fact that he has them together makes him very interesting so the category that we haven't talked about really that is so important to him is the difference between use value and value and donald you said that that's obvious but if it was obvious it wouldn't have to be said now it should be obvious that marx doesn't just care about exchange, considering he makes fun of Jeremy Bentham and Capital for only caring about exchange and does this whole thing on like production, mm-hmm. you know. Like, <laughs> but, but but it does have to be said because of the terrible history of distorting Marx. And the thing about value and use value, a lot of people take Marx to be a normal ass political economist and be saying that labor value isn't just a social, you know, emergent thing in capitalism. It's just the truth about how labor works and projecting that relation back into time. Stalin says the law of value applies to socialism now as well. And that's what you get in Paul Cockshot too, is he kind of tries to apply value to socialism and pre-capitalist societies. That's the kind of ideology that Marx was trying to critique. And there's a way that Postone talks about this that I hate. He says, oh, this isn't a critical political economy. This is a critique of political economy. By saying that dumb thing, he means something smart. The smart thing is that Marx thinks that value, and actually all these categories he thinks, but that could go a little too far, but I think it's bending the stick too far in the correct direction, is that, you know, all these things are relative to capital. We're not doing a general theory of labor. We're doing a a theory of labor under capital. That fits in with my interpretation of capital, that really what he's doing is he's creating a set of abstractions of capital as at its peers logic it's right um kind of separate like right put in a vacuum away from all other social factors to kind of develop the abstractions that define its peer logic same by doing this kind of dialectic between abstractions of concrete examples and so really marx and capital is not describing the way things should be he's doing a critique of historical social categories produced by capitalism itself the part where he says that it's a critique of political economy rather than just doing political economy. I I think in context, it's quite sympathetic. Many arguments regarding Marx's analysis of the uniqueness of labor as the source of value, supportive as well as critical, overlook his distinction between real wealth and value. Uh, The Gundrisa indicates, however, that Marx's labor theory of value is not a theory of the unique properties of labor in general, but is an analysis of the historical specificity of value as a form of wealth, and hence implicitly of the labor that supposedly constitutes Mm -hmm. it. Consequently, it is irrelevant to argue for or against Marx's theory of value as if it were intended to be a labor theory of transhistorical wealth. That is, if right. Marx had written a political economy rather than a critique of political economy. This is not to say, of course, that 
the interpretation of Marx's category of value as a historically specific category proves his analysis of modern society is correct, but it does require that Marx's analysis be considered in its own historically determinant terms and not as if it were a transhistorical theory of political economy of the sort you strongly criticized. I think that's I, I think that he makes a strong case for why right. a critique of political economy there in content what he's saying is fine that specific word game i just don't think is all that productive because i i disagree i think that's what a critical political economy is marx like obviously thinks ca- these capitalist categories are the good self-consciousness of bourgeois society and probably would look at neoclassical economics and be like you know what this obscures things more than this old shit does this old shit just really, you know, shows you where the surplus come from. Like, I don't know, that's like some real bong rip speculation. But I think Marx would, you know, look at the changes that come after him in bourgeois economics and kind of laugh and be like, eh, they're trying to cover up, you know, the truth. What, what I said about capitalist society, because the truth about capitalist society, even by Postone's estimation, is relative to capitalist society, necessarily. Like, there's this relativist aspect of... Marks that Lukash does a deep dive into. Right, but lab- labor creating value is is a feature of capitalism. This is a good point by Postone. But Marx also makes this transhistorical. I think he does make right. transhistorical claims about human labor. He does. He that was my does. objection. My objection about Postone is that Marx does make these transhistorical claims about human labor. Like he even goes as far to say that labor is basically what makes us human. Right. Our ability <laughs> to collectively, <laughs> our ability to collectively transform nature in new ways is essentially what makes us different from right. other animals. And so there definitely is a anthropology of labor, or whatever you want to call Absolutely. it, in Marx. But I think Pistone is kind of bending the stick too far right. against. I, I can understand why, like the you know bastard form of histomat and diamat that are being like pumped out as the main f- form of ideology for like a third of the world. Like, like if if that's who Pistone has in mind. And, you know, Postone has to deal with, like, dumbass liberal critical theory academics that that's what they think Marxism is. You know what I mean? Like, then I think you see the utility of this. It's very, very succinct. I mean, yeah, it just definitely has a place in history. I'm sorry, Elaine, this shirt's too fancy. Just because you're a communist, does that mean you can't wear anything nice? You look like Trotsky. Good. Fine, you want to be a communist? Be a communist. Can't you at least look like a successful communist? Right. Like, it's just how strongly academia has turned against Marxism, and Pistone is kind of trying to be like, alright, listen, maybe you can actually like Marxism. My problem is that his Marxism just seems a bit completive. Like, in his History and Helplessness article, I really felt like he kind of just saw things like the Iraq War as not something that we need to fight against. No, no, and no. I, d- I mobilize com- completely against, but disagree. Just kind of this thing to contemplate about and just say, well, you know, these anti-war protesters, maybe they're right to oppose Iraq, but why aren't they saying anything about Saddam being a despot? And it just seems like a very just politically silly point to make. Why did Answer Coalition not like condemn Saddam Hussein? I, I don't think that's, like, a terrible thing to ask. Like, this guy was more violent than the, you know, the fascists that he cited. Like, and he's kind of, he's not, like, totally wrong by calling Saddam something like a fascist. 
the Baathists or these secular, like the Pan-Arabists, you know. I don't deny that Saddam is, you know, essentially fascistic and chauvinist, and he was, you know, a dictator. So, some of these Baathists were propped up by the United States as an alternative to Soviet, you know, satellites. For tactical reasons, it doesn't make sense that if you're trying to stop a war, that you're going to put as much propagandizing into, you know, demonizing the enemy of your own country. They, it kind of falls into Carl It's Lee. not demonizing. No, it's not really demonizing. The thing about it is that he was calling for there to be more, like, progressive Iraqi voices to be heard. That's not, like, that's not irrational. It was, like, the Iraq War Movement had the right cause, but anyone around oh, it yeah, could mean, tell could... that there was something weird and narcissistic about the left. No, that didn't escape anyone, and when Postone says that the way that the left handled this enabled, like, the right to gain a foothold in the anti-war left, or, like, in the anti-globalization movement, in the anti-war movement, like, you know, Derek's testimony... <laughs> <laughs> can speak to that. Oh, yeah, I, I don't deny that, but he's kind of just saying that this is just, well, you know, back in the old days in the anti-war movement, we had, you know, the Soviet bloc to fight against, and so you could cheer for the Vietnamese, and you could cheer for the Sandinistas and the Cubans, and it was still something progressive, and it wasn't like these Ba'athists like Saddam or today Assad. And so he is making, you know, a legitimate point there. I'm right. not denying that. I do think that there is an anti-imperialism of fools. I just think that his unwillingness to make an actual stand against Iraq is 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 what bothers me. Is uh, that he's so hung up over I, he's so hung up over people not critiquing Saddam enough. When Saddam is as he's about to be completely decimated. That's not the point of this. The point is US imperialism. Well, the, the problem like, was, the problem wasn't you know, in the Iraq war, like, not obviously not critiquing Saddam, the problem was that nobody really pointed out the obvious of just, like, you know, the actual politics of the region, and pretty much everything that happened in the wake of the Iraq war was absolutely 100% predictable. Right. And, you know, anybody, I mean, like, one of the only people I heard pointing that out was, like, Chomsky. Right. If you ever watched, like, any actual, like, um, any actual, like, anti-war rallies or anything like that, it was always, no blood for oil, and this is our Vietnam, and now it's our time to be the ones resisting Vietnam. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it was not like Vietnam. And, and I think uh, Pistone makes a good point right. there. And he actually gives more credit to national liberation movements than I kind of expected. Yeah, no, he's incredibly sympathetic to those you know, movements that were, yeah, even though they were Soviet-aligned. And he has an incredible critique of the kind of weird nationalistic, quote, internationalism that came out of the Cold War. That that was another thing that I thought I thought you would probably want to talk about, Donald. Actually, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I want to get into is this whole like kind of geopolitical conclusions from this because he's kind of saying that this whole idea of traditional Marxism or this whole unwillingness or un, uh, inability to understand like the kind of fetishistic reified nature of capitalism and the impersonal nature of these social relations of production, it causes people to personalize the relations of domination, which leads to this kind of anti-Semitic ideology, and this ties in with a lot of the anti-imperialist kind of ideology and the anti-globalist thought that's kind of growing at this time. And I do think that the left helped the rise of the anti-globalist right by ceding too much nationalism to them. I think that there is something to He does this. a great genealogy of, like, a lot of the anti-Semitism in the contemporary, or, you know, at the then contemporary, like, like Arab resistance to 
the changes in neoliberalism that like decimated them just like it decimated other parts of the globe. He he credits them to like an anti-Semitic turn in Soviet propaganda, actually. Yeah, that was interesting because it it makes sense that in these countries where communist movements are being actively actively suppressed, that the the critique of capitalism will take on this kind of nationalistic, anti-Semitic, productivist you know, anti-finance, pro-productive capital. I mean, I'm sorry, if that's if nature. that's not red fascism, if that, that's not, like, you know, f- <laughs> full-blown reaction, dressed up as, as revolution at that point. Like... But how even dressed up as revolution was Baathism? I mean, I guess... I yeah, just, they, were, they were supposedly socialists. They are supposedly secular pa- pan-Arabist socialists. They were, they were pan-nationalist socialists. Well, I think there's a story of Iran that would be a fascinating episode, too, because... Oh, yeah. Yeah, we gotta do that shit. That's that's a hugely important revolution. I think that the, the legacy of the Iranian left has kind of been forgotten. And they're really the last council revolution. Mm. There were workers councils That is in true. Iran. There were workers councils in Iran. That. But, it, I mean, it just kind of goes to show that workers councils don't make a revolution a workers revolution <laughs> anyway so back to postone the broader problem of this soviet loyalist or maoist loyalist kind of faux internationalism where really you're just aligned with a supranational block and postone's idea is that that's like a bad false version of internationalism and that you'd be better off without those kind of dyadic narratives of oh we have the prime evil in the world is america or if you went back in time and went oh the prime evil in the world is the uk and you ignored lesser domineering imperial powers that's kind of like what dugan's narrative is with the whole unipolar power of united states is this unipolar power that controls the world and we need a multipolar world and so we need to support like all nationalism and have eurasian or whatever but I think that Pastone's critique of the Soviet bloc, I think he does actually concede that, you know, back when the Soviet bloc existed, there was a reason to kind of side with these anti-imperialist movements and side with the Soviet Union. But it's compa- taking that dyadic right. kind of thinking and then repeating it to today, where there is no real progressive anti-imperialist bloc. Right, exactly. And so what leftists try to do is they try to create this new like this imaginary progressive anti-imperialist block and what they do is they just end up siding with a bunch of dictators who oppress the working yeah. class and it's this kind of desire to to continue that cold war narrative to today and that's why you have people who are so pro-assad and people who are you know really pro uh, iran pro russia even well and some of that is just like the degradation of politics to like a. Uh... You know, it's like it's it's for a lot of people. It's just like football. You just watch it to have someone to root for. You know what I mean? Like, if you want to root for a team, some people just want to root for a team. Yeah, I mean, and I guess that's the mentality that people have when they, you know, are all like, "Go Hezbollah, go Assad, go North Korea." Like, yeah. I, I, if you, you just want another dog to root for, that's fine. But we're kind of looking for something more emancipatory and universalistic when kind of just rooting for the underdog. And I hate the fact that I'm saying this because it's the kind of shit that I hear platypus people say. Because there is a real truth to anti-imperialism that I think Pistone is kind of dismissing out of hand. And that in the end, it was more important for the left to focus on calling for 
you know, the removal of all U.S. troops from Iraq, more of it was important for us to talk about Saddam Hussein's crimes. The opinion about Saddam is kind of a strategic one. In the, he's basically saying you can't just use, like, a kind of moralism to motivate people to dislike the war. Like, that's not going to escape the left. And that you have yeah. to kind of have a nuanced case and that you have to appeal, like, maybe appeal to people's actual interests, like, hey, if we have this war, it's going to militarize society. Like, well, that's what the anti-war movement did in my my memory, though. Are you saying that post is really soft in the Iraq war? Because I, I assure you that the intellectual environment that this guy was in, people were fucking all the time, just like anti-Trumpers are, resisting right now. Like, oh my god, yeah. I'm totally against the war, oh my god, does he have to go, okay. oh my god, I'm against and- the war too. Like, yeah, and they were right. It's the anti-coalition people that Pistone is complaining about that actually maintain that anti-imperialist stance through Obama as well. As Karl Liebnick said, the main enemy is at home. For German workers in Germany, the, the main agitation you were making was against the German state, not trying to talk about how the Tsar was really bad and how you know he did a lot of bad things. So, during the Iraq War, I bet there were people... Because, like, you see the thing now where it's like, um, actually, Assad uh, was going to <laughs> get them off of the petrodollar and return to the gold standard. Oh, yeah, you probably saw yeah. You probably saw tons of apologies yeah, yeah, for yeah. Saddam. Yeah, we haven't done our Gaddafi episode yet. I've seen similar memes about Assad, though, where it's like, oh, he, he actually pissed off. He pissed off the New World Order, and that's why he's the bad guy no, now. No, like... F- Frizzo think that Assad is the modern day Lenin. Like, yeah. There's all kinds oh. of insanity about Assad. Oh man, I guess his name has the same number of letters. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they have that in common. Good point. For all right, one Frizzo. No, I won't even give them that. But uh, five equals five, Donald. Back to Pistone. He has a critique of violence that I thought was interesting, where he says that there's a difference between kind of indiscriminate violence against civilians and actual kind of revolutionary warfare, which literally reminded me of Che Guevara, because he kind of says the same thing, that, like, a revolutionary only attacks enemy combatants and never commits crimes against civilians. That's dope. That's super dope. Go Che Guevara. (laughs) And Pistone kind of makes that argument in in history and helplessness. He kind of has a weird reading of Fanon, in my opinion, where he, like, sees Fanon as being for violence for the sake of violence, which I thought was kind of off point, because that's not how I read Fanon, at least. Doesn't Fanon say something like what Postone says, like he characterizes him as saying that, you know, given the rationalized, bureaucratic, colonial, bourgeois order, sometimes, you know, acting violently for the sake of doing something violent can be a way of breaking through that on some kind of existential level? He, he, Fanon doesn't say anything of the sort, Donald. I think he says something kind of like that. What he's really saying is that through the process of armed struggle and uniting a people against a colonized power, you create a, a common kind of subjectivity. Is I think the more important point of that. Revisit that in a Fanon episode, probably do it again, and then I guess read Che. We didn't read concerning violence, which is really no. We didn't read on violence, yeah. and and I guess people are reading it through John Paul Sartre's like introduction. 
mm-hmm. kind yeah, of frames also, it. He also is kind of reading him through Sorel and Pareto, which I thought was unfair. Pareto! I couldn't believe that. I had I had to look up, like, was, whoa, Pareto? You mean, like, Pareto efficiency in economics? Yeah, yeah, the guy you came up with, Pareto efficiency, was uh, a fascist. It's like, well... If you can make someone better off without making anyone else less good off, then you have to do it. And that's Pareto efficiency. Well, this is Pareto efficient. This is the most efficient it could be. By the way, Zieg Heil. Yeah, Pareto was a fascist. (laughs) Yeah, all right. I just thought it was unfair to kind of throw Van On in with those people. But the point he's kind of trying to make is that there's this fetishization of violence that people have where it's this kind of concrete, unreified, unmediated form of activity that's this kind of rebellion against the, the, the reified, fetishistic, administered form of capitalism, and that this form of violence, it's anti-bourgeois, but it's not actually emancipatory, it's just actually reactionary, and can be, and you kind of see this with, like, Shining Path and MLM groups today, with this kind of weird fetishization of violence. He makes the explicit parallel between, like, the new left and fascist, like, valorization of violence that, like, we sometimes do when we're talking about the influence of Maoism on the new left. Like, honestly, I think this is probably this, the most interesting about Postone's thought. If you look overall, what Postone is giving you is, like, a modernization theory of capital and a homogenization kind of theory of capital. Not even homogenization, but that you're subjecting things to laws that wouldn't normally be subject to laws. And there's something incredibly Heideggerian about the people that insist on reading every single little bit of the early Marx into the late Marx. You do have this kind of like demonization of the abstract in a way that this like anti-Semitic critique could be drawn out by like like the left wing of the Nazis or something. And so Postone, probably more than any Marxist theorist I can think of, has this Heideggerian streak, but is uniquely not open to the objection of hating the abstract in the way that left-wing Nazis did, like, you know, quote, left-wing of the Nazis did, like, because he has, he explicitly calls out this dynamic. This is an impressive thing. Isn't that the whole of critical theory, though, essentially? Yeah. (laughs) They have this running critique of uh, increasing amount of uh, technological, like, domination over society and its relationship to capital just being, like, all-consuming and destroying agency and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, they're not willing to go where Heidegger goes and where, like, primos go and that sort of thing. Like, it's just it's continuously there in the critique of um, instrumental reason. I don't know. I understand what you're saying because you can consistently read the Frankfurt School and this stuff in a sane way, but so frequently it is read in an insane way. Um, to be incredibly blunt. But have you ever considered that the insane are really the sane? Well... There is a sort of social rationality to the way people read texts, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Sometimes people are misreading things for political reasons. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it Pistone is just following in a tradition of critical theory that views Marxism like outside of like class, just views it outside of class as merely a means of critiquing capital in this sort of like vaguely romantic way, but not fully romantic. 
Well, he's explicit about that more than any Marxist I've ever read. He's like, let's not even talk about class. What if we just talk about the way capital interacts with your life, man? Yeah, this reminds me of value form theorists who just see class struggle as nothing more than a commodity bargaining for its labor power, basically. And that's all class struggle is. And all class struggle does is reproduce a capital relation. Right. That's exactly what he's saying. That the proletariat is a historically determinate category. It offers only a standpoint within capitalism and offers no way out. Well, he does say, though, like there are historical potentialities for exiting the capitalist system. Right. But, but he, doesn't, he doesn't seem to go into much detail about what those are or when. He's actually clearly a student of classical historical materialism in a certain way. Like he thinks historical materialism applies in the classical Marxist way, within capitalism, just in a better version of the classical Marxist way, a more consistent version, you know, because he thinks that those opportunities are basically opened a lot by the productive forces. And again, the productive forces are not some neutral technological method that, you know, can just be maintained when we get to communism. No, 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 these things have to be transformed, and they're, like, developed in a certain way. It's a directional, but not, like, a unilinear way. He does like a really good job of showing why Marx is not one of these caricature enlightenment thinkers where, you know, think of progress as a graph going up. Like every time you talked about Marx with liberals, you had to defend him from the most basic shit, things that people say that they clearly haven't read Marx. He says this quite succinctly, like you cannot group Marx in with these people. Marx has this theory of directionality that is not the classical, you know, enlightenment, like, stepladder. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. When I read his reading of Grundy's, I kind of got, like, a feeling that, like, maybe I was, like, more influenced by, like, Jehu in reading it. Because, like, the way, like, Pistone, like, specifically talks about, like, value limiting, like, the freedom of labor under it and limiting... Uh, sort of contrasting it to, like, material... I think it's material wealth? Well, right. Right, material wealth. He thinks against some of the dumbass communizers, and he he's good, he's good at this, that there's material wealth that is transhistorical. Use value, basically, is transhistorical. Like, just doesn't always have fucking abstract labor mm-hmm. value like, to dance with yeah like specifically it's value like contrasting to like material wealth under capitalism and like yeah he even maintains he even maintains an idea that it holds back like the productive forces in some way he's actually yeah. a very attentive reader of marx no that's not really jehu though because jehu doesn't actually believe in the fettering thesis he sees capitalism only like not limiting, like, material wealth, but it's just, like, the only way through is through capital at that point. But in a way, that's kind of what platypus argue, is that the only way beyond liberalism is through liberalism. You know how they have that whole critique that, you know, not not against capitalist society, but through capitalist society. Yeah, Lenin's sure. liberalism. Yeah, Lenin's liberalism. <laughs> I think it's it's silly, but I can see how they get this from Postone. Yeah, it's that, but only not really accelerationist in terms of, like, it is limited to the political rather than to, say, lean into the economism. Which makes me wonder how exactly Jehu actually reads Pistone, honestly. I don't, I don't see anything that would connect 
connect it to what he is looking for in terms of a project other than like maybe not looking to the proletariat as a subject and capital being holist oh yeah yeah never mind yeah exactly capital is subject of history capital is subject of history and also communization in general has an obvious solution to this mediation of value why don't we have the kind of grand ruptural thing that Postone basically says is almost impossible. And if you, fo- if you follow this out, you do end up with something that seems like kind of structurally anti-Semitic in a way. <laughs> it sounds like Helter Skelter. Like, like yeah. if you actually think about communization working out in practice, I just think that it would be really ugly. <laughs> we need to read Postone in, in a better way, because I actually think that Postone fundamentally is like one of ours like he's a he's a good reader of marx like he Mm. gives a shit about what marx had to say he like he improves the understanding of people who read him of the source material like oh yeah i thought this was all excellent i just think that there is kind of a conservative streak to his politics moisha postone this guy was an og during the fucking 90s jesus christ that must have been terrible that must have been the dumbest fucking time in history that was the nadir of history it was a show about nothing. No story? No, forget the story. You gotta have a story. Who says you gotta have a story? I don't know how to feel about it, actually, because I feel like... I mean, yeah, he was holding on to Marxism. He was holding on to Marxism when no one else wanted to hang on to Marxism, but he was holding on to a Marxism that was completely neutered. Just talking? Well, what's the show about? Yeah, I actually like this, I don't know. I think that like both him and Richard Wolf actually have that in common. I'm going to take that stretch and say that Richard Wolf and Pistone were like, you know, Marxists for the era of the 90s. Why would you even be a Marxist if you don't believe in class struggle? As he believes, there's no possible way that we could reach communism. There's no utility to this outside of maybe having like an academic career at one of the most conservative universities in all the country. U of Chicago, which is, I was like mildly surprised that he taught there specifically. Yeah, a lot, a lot of communizers seem to be around U of Chicago. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's pretty strange. It's pretty strange if you ask the Maoids who seem to think that that magazine commune that like that all the communionizers are getting into was started by like cia or, or oh, fbi man. or something like that and that what? has links you can see where this is going yeah communion wafer theory is propped up by cia yeah, yeah. basically yeah wait the new that new magazine commune is a cia operation <laughs> that's the Maoist conspiracy oh, theory okay. that's jasper burns and other you know people yeah i, I think around it yeah i mean they, they say it. they say that about everything that pops up that gets you know any attention I remember seeing, like, a meme where it was just, like, this sort of generic hipster guy, and he was just described, oh, yeah, I was shipped out from, like, Chicago or whatever to California by the intelligence department to start a magazine called Commune, and you can't, can't, and I hope that answers your question or something. Let's let's co-sign on this. I think we should co-sign on this conspiracy theory to explain, like, why our show isn't more popular. Yeah. We don't have that CIA funding. Well, you know what? There was very few things in my history of being like in the left wing that made me think this is a CIA plant. But when I first read like EndNote stuff that was like against the idea of class politics, I was like, 
Guys, are you sure this isn't a CIA plant? This seems like a CIA plant. Like, <laughs> it's one of the only times I yes, really felt that yes, way. No, like, that's in, in reading all of this. And I've, I've come to, like, see, see them, you know, with a, more respect and kind of, like, try to read them more charitably. And I've gotten a lot out of it. But still, at the end of the day, when I was bouncing between a community college trots who were fucked and hopeless and, you know, gossip girl grad school communizers in a reading group, you know what I mean? Like... I kind of got this sense of they want to eliminate class because it makes them uncomfortable. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's why I think Ellen Makeson's Wood, her book Retreat from Class, was the real heavy hitter in this, in Marxism from the 90s. Because honestly, Pistone, as much as he is trying to rep Marxism in a really tough time, he is still retreating from class. And I think that's the key mistake of Marxist in this kind of neo-Marxist uh, period. It's all about retreating from class. That's what neo-Marxism is always... It's what it always means. It's Marxism with less class analysis. And I think Mason's Wood, her book on that, really did, like, hit, you know, the spot, I think. Yeah. Gang. Gang, gang. And I want to talk about the concept of structural anti-Semitism as it relates to conspiracy theories. Well, we should spell out what it is, really. Have we Have we really spelled it out? Yeah, let's talk about structural anti-Semitism. So, the concept of structural anti-Semitism basically outlines this sort of, like, crude anti-capitalism, which basically emphasizes the role of, like, one particular agent... One particular, like a small group of people within this like larger system that basically like controls everything. They're behind everything. Who controls the British crown? Who keeps the metric system down? We do. We do. Who keeps Atlantis off the maps? Who keeps the Martians under wraps? We do. This crude anti-capitalism, this sort of, like, logic, ends up being anti-Semitic since, like, the, the subtext is these are a small group of people usually tied to finance or something like that that are controlling the world, controlling everything, and it's it's only a stone throw away from saying, oh yeah, the Jews control everything. It's only a stone throw away from that. And the way Pistone applies this concept is basically a large chunk of the anti-imperialist left thinks in this sort of manner. They think in terms of like this small group of like sort of shady military industrial complex people just controlling everything and just making the world shit and using their financial powers, or they think of it in terms of the Zionists, and this is where it gets really, really close to straightforward anti-Semitism, that the Zionists are actually controlling the United States through their lobbying and that sort of thing. And you see this in, like, liberal circles, too. Like, liberal, like, critics of Israel always go on about APAC and Israel lobby. Yeah, the, the most disturbing thing about this, I guess, from a critical theory perspective, is that, you know, the founders of critical theory, people like Adorno, took anti-Semitism as the paradigmatic form of bourgeois irrationality, like as the kind of evidence of a 
defect in Enlightenment thought. Like, <laughs> and they said it was idiosyncratic for the reasons that Post Stone also identifies. But they also sort of took it as the model for considering the kinds of terrifying irrationalities, like rational irrationalities, instrumentally motivated rationalities that capitalism can produce. Like, anti-Semitism is the prime form, and this is a left-wing variant distributed by the Soviet Union. I was just going to add about the whole Soviet Union, the Arab world thing. I imagine, like, after World War II, like, the kind of cadres in the KGB really didn't have the best understanding of Marxism. They probably just, like, learned, like, you know, from the Stalinist, like, short course, basically. And so, they're trying to win over... You know, these third world population. So I imagine a lot of them kind of just dumbed down their ideology for opportunistic reasons in a lot of ways. You guys, you guys hate Jews. We hate Jews. We have so much in common. <laughs> Into basically fascism. I'm sorry, but like once you get to that, it's like kind of hard. It's really hard to say that it doesn't really re- resemble fascism like pretty strongly. And that's the most disturbing thing about this. Like the Syrian social nationalist parties. I have sort of, like, a love-hate relationship with this concept because, like, it it is pretty useful in explaining a lot of, like, weird shit with the left, specifically, like, the, like, the sort of intersection between, like, weird conspiracy theories that are, like, kind of bad, like 9-11 truthers being at left forum, stuff like that, and, like, just sort of, like, the left in general because, like, the sort of, like, crude anti-capitalist thinking of, oh, there's these small group of shady financiers and, like, all these bad people who are secretly controlling the world, you know. Yes. That's capitalism in a nutshell. Surplus value is an inside job. Yeah, basically, yeah. It it can lead to, like, sort of, like, thinking of, yeah, you know, it's possible that 9-11 was an inside job and, you know, the FBI... Get, uh, had like JFK killed or the mob, whatever. This is just all this dumb shit. It leads to bad thinking. But at the same time, like, to what extent is there a truth to like structural anti Semitic thinking? There has to be some level of agency on the part of the capitalists, and like, Pastone's like reading of Marx just like utterly annihilates any kind of like agency on the part of the capitalists, and you just end up with capital as an agent of itself that like reproduces itself no matter who's in charge, and that kind of like negates the entire point of Marxism because like we believe that putting the proletarian in a position of power will end up leading to the destruction of capitalism as a whole and things of that nature. So what this seems to imply is that putting the proletariat in charge here probably wouldn't change a damn thing. Right. 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 That they would have to like transform it as they take charge so that the heteronomy wouldn't just take hold of them. Yeah, that's, like, a level of abstract that I kind of just lose, like, lose it at. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, too, with, like, anti-Semitic thought, like, it's also just kind of like, you know, there was some harmonious order that existed before, but the sort of, you know, intruder in our midst has, like, undermined it from within, and so we need to, like, expel that, like, intruder agent, and then everything will be good again, you know? It's a parasitic corruption narrative. I kind of prefer not casting it in terms of 
structural anti-Semitism because it kind of polemically poisoned pill because Rosa, you just had to say structural anti-Semitism. It's kind of true. You know what I mean? And so it sounds like you're supporting a kind of anti-Semitism. Well, here's my issue. I have a critique of the theory of structural anti-Semitism, which is that the way that anti-Deutsch utilizes it is essentially to say that if there is a proletarian revolution, Mm. all that will happen is one big pogrom, basically. Well, right, this does inform a kind of conservatism. Actually, in a way, it reminds me of, like, Richard Dawkins' kind of politics people that, oh, you need a good memeable thing, like Christianity had a good meme to it, but you could never get the good parts of it to catch on. And, like, the reason that Marxism took off is because of a resentment-driven meme form, which I don't think is totally wrong, actually, but they take it to a level where it's, like, popular politics is destined to be you know, stupid. It's destined to be like a, a realm of absurdities uh, and because people are, are dumb apes and you can't really expect anything from them. You can see how Sorrel ties into this because oh, he thinks yeah. that you need this kind of irrational myth to drive people through politics. And so if you right. think that mass proletarian mobilization is possible, you could argue that it's only possible if it's inspired by this kind of chauvinistic attack of the in-group against the out-group or you know, like, against the immigrant or Jew or gay other, you know? I have to say, like, just anthropologically speaking, like, there's pretty, I think, strong evidence for for this kind of thing. So our task is, in the face of, you know, some deeply disturbing kind of evidence about humanity, (laughs) we still have to reconstruct internationalism. Oh, and yeah, and that's why I think you can't just have spontaneity, because as much faith as I do have in humanity, I'm not foolish enough to think that if we just let humans do whatever they want to fucking do, that they're going to create, like, a harmonious, um, (laughs) emancipatory society. Like, you have to have some kind of godforsaken vanguard that, I don't know, I hate that word, but you do have to have, like some kind of directionality that's, you know, thought of consciously, if that makes sense. He seems to value democracy. He seems to value self-determination. But he wants these things to be genuine, to be real, not just this weird fucking mediation stuff. Yeah, not not just, like, instrumentalities for different factions of reactionary regimes and capital to kind of stake out their claims legitimacy. Right, to maintain capitalist production, to maintain the manual intellectual labor division, to maintain... He really wants to get rid of an economy that runs, you know, specifically on human labor. He seems like, in a way, friendly to accelerationists in that regard, that he seems to be open to a kind of, like, machine-minding society. Yeah, he, that's where he reminds me of Marcuse, and I think it's interesting that yeah. people like Burns, who kind of want to, you know, destroy all capitalist technology, that's where they really break from him, is that Stone is almost kind of a fully automated luxury communist. Well, he wants to end, end the domination of, like, time over man or whatever. But he doesn't think this will happen through some kind of, like, return to a primitive society. He wants a society where, basically, all labor is voluntary, and people just kind of do things on their own schedule, you know? I mean, is that not, like, the true goal of communism? Yeah. Yeah, it is. He's we're, right. We're, I think we needed someone like Pistone to remind us of that in the 90s, so yeah, as we're, wrong we're, as he is in a lot of cases, I have a lot of respect for him. Where it gets hairy is, you know, how do you get to that point? You know, it's a transition. That's all. That, that's the real question. It's the real communist question. Is well, that's our task, is to rehabilitate the theory of the dictatorship of the proletariat in the 21st century. Alright? He did the rest... Now, all we have to do is do that and then maybe build out historical materialism. You know, we're settled. We're yeah. square.
<laughs> and then we just need to basically find a way to demonize the right people, so we can yeah. round them up and and hang them. Off right, post. right. That makes sense. That, that I don't see anything wrong with that. We need to target the right cap. We also need to fight like structural anti-Semitism and find a way to keep Jeremy Corbyn out of power. In, uh, in <laughs> oh God, there's nothing structural about that anti-Semitism. That Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Oh yeah. God. No, no, I'm sorry. Just to clarify, Jokes. we're joking. We don't. Think yeah, we're totally joking. Yeah, obviously. What? Yeah. Well. So yeah. Rest in peace, Moisture Postone. You're a theory comrade, and you uh, made a really dumb conversation a lot smarter. That's it for this week. First of all, we hope the friends, family, colleagues, students, and other associates of Moisha Postone take our critique and ribbing as a tribute to an important Marxist part and parcel of a place in the Swampside Pantheon. Let us know how we did at swampsidechats at gmail.com as well as our other communication channels. You know what they are. Subscribe to our Patreon, yada yada. Get neat bonuses. Remember that Swampside Chats will never hide podcast content behind a paywall. Also, the month of December is the last month to subscribe and get a custom episode for half the price of what it'll be in 2019. Find out more at patreon.com slash swampsidechats. Special thanks to Jamie. He didn't pay for this episode, but we all felt that a look at Postone was long overdue, and he gave us the push and the recommendations. Next week, back to culture critique, when we go Swamp Trek, the next generation, with special guests. Keep your boots clean, comrades.